Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Well, Lord willing, I'd like to consider with you this morning the topic of intercession. Intercession, or mediation, involves reconciliation of two or more parties by means of a third party. And this relates closely to satisfaction for sin, atonement, and other things. But it is a very common and fundamental theme in Scripture, and we see it here in Romans 8, as we've just read. But in order to provide some context for a consideration of this passage, I would like to consider some Old Testament references in relation to intercession as well. You don't have to turn to these, but one that we could consider, and there are many, is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where we see Moses says to the nation of Israel, the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Again, this is Moses speaking to Israel. It's quite a thing that Moses would say to Israel, the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain. As you'll recall, they weren't even allowed near that mountain. If even an animal touched the mountain, it was to be stoned. Well, how can he say this? The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Here we go. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. Moses was standing between the Lord and Israel. He was bringing the words of God to the people because the people could not come to God. They were forbidden from coming to God. Moses was a mediator. He went between God and man. He was interceding 
for the people as a priest. A priest represents God to man, and Moses was declaring the word of God, the law, to the people. Well, as you know, while Moses is on Mount Sinai, the people turn to idolatry. They make a golden calf, and God says to Moses, as recorded in Exodus 32, Now let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. God says, just get out of my way. I'm going to destroy these people and make you into something, Moses. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God. Moses begs God to remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He begs that God would remember the promise that he made to multiply them, to bless them. And that text there in Exodus shows us that God relents of his anger. Again, Moses is interceding. He is standing between the Lord and the people, but here he's functioning in a way as a priest. A prophet represents God to man, but a priest represents man to God. And here Moses is pleading on behalf of the people, begging that God would have mercy on them. And you see this type of intercession in a number of places in Scripture, and a number of them are found in the book of Numbers. So I'll have you turn there with me to the book of Numbers, but hold your spot in Romans. Numbers uh, 14 will be one place. Numbers 14. And again, the people here are grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And in Numbers 14, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Numbers 14, verse 12. I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. I'm just going to destroy them because of their disobedience. Well, skipping down to verse 15, what does Moses say? Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by an oath. Therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, see he's begging the Lord, I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Very clear uh, example of Moses being a mediator. He is interceding on behalf of the people. <clears throat> Another example would be in Numbers 16, and this relates to the uh, rebellion of Korah. You know, the, the sons of Korah and so on had rebelled against Moses, and the Lord responds by causing the earth to open up and swallow up Korah and their possessions, and they go to hell. And fire comes from the Lord and, and 
consumes 250 men, all right? But the next day, the congregation is grumbling against Moses and Aaron, and they're saying that it's their fault that these people had died. It was unbelievable. And um, if you look there at verse, uh, verse 42 of number 16, it came about, however... When the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Again, the Lord's not speaking directly to the people. He's speaking to Moses as a prophet, saying, Get away from, this, get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting for the plague had been checked. A very dramatic, again, example of intercession. God is doing away with these people. He is dealing out his righteous, just wrath. And you have this dramatic show here of intercession that Aaron runs into the midst of this plague with his incense, with the censer, and uh, makes atonement for the people there and the plague is checked. One other example in Numbers 21. Again, the people are becoming impatient <clears throat> because of the journey, and as a result um, of of their complaining. In Numbers 21, verse 6, it says the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede, or it could be translated pray or mediate. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. People can't even, come, the people can't even cry out to God and beg for his mercy. They come to Moses. Moses, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent... He lived. Well, <clears throat> what we have in the Old Testament is a pattern 
of God speaking to sinful man through the prophets, sinful man rebelling against God, sinful man being unable to represent himself to God, man is in need of a mediator. That is, one who can intercede, one who can represent God to man as a prophet, one who can represent uh, pardon, one who can represent God to man as a prophet and who represents man to God as a priest. So these essential things are present in the Old Testament, but we only see them really as, as shadows. Moses was a prophet. He was speaking the words of God, but he himself was not divine. Moses said and did things that were uninspired. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Remember that. Aaron was the high priest. He entered into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement on behalf of the people to ceremonially cleanse them from sin. But Aaron himself was a sinner who first had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. So Aaron keeps offering sacrifices again and again which are unable to cleanse the conscience, sacrifices which ultimately are reminders of sin, sacrifices which are testaments of the need of man for the one true and real sacrifice that was yet to come. So Moses and Aaron were only men. They disobeyed God. They didn't believe God. They didn't treat God as holy before the people. And as a result of that, they're not allowed to enter into the promised land. So the essential need for intercession is clear in the Old Testament in shadow form. The substance of intercession is only in Jesus Christ, where we see here in John 3 that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Never did the word of God come down from Sinai as it came down in Bethlehem. What did Christ say? When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me, John 8. My teaching is not mine, John 7. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me, John 14. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, John 8. He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14. Jesus Christ is the only real prophet. He is the only real prophet. He is the perfect representation of God to man. And not only this, but Jesus Christ is the only true priest. He is the only one who perfectly represents man to God, who goes to God on our behalf, uh, having no sin of his own. Now, when we talk about the priest, I think it's, it's important to mention briefly the Roman Catholic view of priesthood. 
Uh, in Roman Catholicism, the priest is a mediator. He is a mediator in the sense that the people cannot come to God on their own, so the priest intervenes to bring them to God. And Roman Catholic doctrine is that the priest is a sacrificer of the real body and blood of Christ, which is offered up repeatedly in the Mass for the satisfaction, that is, the, the expiation of sin. And Roman Catholicism teaches that the priest, um, as a mediator, has the power to forgive sin. And that's why it's so important for Roman Catholics to confess their sin uh, to their priest, because they can't confess their sin to God on their own. They have no direct relation to the work of the cross themselves. It is only indirectly through the mediation of the priest. Now, of course, this is completely unbiblical. There is no true priest in the Roman Catholic sense at all. And this could be proven in a number of ways from Scripture, but just Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 would be more than sufficient, where we see that just as it was once at the consummation of the age that Jesus Christ has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, so the body of Jesus Christ has been offered once for all. It is by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It is one sacrifice offered once for all time. The act of the death of Christ can't occur again. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's Romans 8 and 1 Peter 3. Christ does not function at present as a sacrifice for sin. Now, listen carefully. Christ does not function at present as a sacrifice for sin as though he is dying or will be sacrificed again. Yes, Jesus carries in his glorified body the marks of the crucifixion, we see that in, as recorded in John, for instance. But Jesus Christ has entered the holy place once for all, and he is seated at the right hand of God. The Lamb is standing in victory, it says in Revelation. Romans 6, 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Hebrews 7, 23-25, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, <clears throat> regarding the element of priesthood, the Bible does refer to the church as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood in, in 1 Peter 2. And as priests... Uh, the Christian uh, or Christians are offering up spiritual sacrifices. Those are praise to God, thanksgiving to God, doing good, sharing. And in Romans 12, uh, Paul exhorts us to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. So you see the connection there. But these spiritual sacrifices do not atone for sin, they do not bring about justification. 
in any way. Biblical sacrifices offered up by the church today are the product or the result of regeneration. They are the aroma of Christ in the church, well-pleasing to God. They are not a reenactment of the crucifixion. No Christian minister or other member can atone for the sin of another person in any way. Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring man to God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And as a perfect mediator, Christ continually intercedes for us based on the perfection of his deity, the efficacy of the sacrifice that he's offered once for all. Christ does what man knows must be done, but which men cannot do in reconciling man and God. Now, back to Romans 8 where we started. You'll notice here in verse uh, 26, it says that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then in 27, it says that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then in verse 34, it says that Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, intercedes for us. In the midst of our weakness, when we don't even know how to pray, we don't even know how to call on God, what do we find? The Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In the midst of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all these things are mentioned. What do we find? The risen Christ is at the right hand of God, interceding, pleading for us. Now this word intercede is the same word that's found in Romans 11 too. Don't turn there, but it says, or do you not know what the scripture says in the in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God. And the context there is pleading with God for the remnant in Israel, for the church. It, Elijah is pleading with God. That's the same word here, intercession, to plead. It's also the same word we see in Acts 25, where the Jews are appealing to Festus regarding Paul. Okay, They are pleading their case before Festus. Well, that is what Christ does for us continually. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us continually. He is pleading. He is appealing his case on our behalf to the Father. When you are weak, when you are weary, even then God is at work on your behalf. The Spirit and the Son are pleading your cause, your case to the Father. God doesn't grow weary. He doesn't slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord builds the house. Christ said, upon this rock I build my church, in, re- in reference to himself, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ purchased the church with his own blood, and he keeps the church. Christ and the Spirit plead for us. God is the one who keeps us. God is the one who is yet at work even when you are weary and weak and tired and discouraged. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. 
Christ has been crucified. His blood has been spilt. We've been justified by faith. God has done wondrous things. Yes, and Christ is interceding now for you. God is thinking of you and your thoughts toward us. Imaginable, isn't it? There you have it, though, that you are in God's mind. He is thinking of you. And I think it's because of these things that we find in 1 John, we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. It takes faith even to grasp in some way how great the Father's love for us is as it is. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God. Christ's intercession for his church is not something abstract. It is real. It does things. And I would say that Christ's intercession for the church ensures, among other things, spiritual victory in the life of the members of the body. It is the basis of eternal security and the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of Christ's intercession completely nullifies the idea of the carnal Christian because Christ is pleading for the Christian continually. Christ is keeping the Christian. Well, we read it before, and I'll read it again, Romans eight twenty six b It says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And then you skip down, as we did before, to Romans uh, 8.34, where it says, Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then you go back between those sections to verse 29. And what does it say? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Nestled between the fact of the intercession of the Spirit of God for you and the fact of the intercession of the Son of God for you is the irrefutable declaration that you will be conformed to the image of the Son of God if you are in Christ. On the other hand, if you can just walk away from Christ, if you can disregard his word, if you can live in rebellion to the biblical counsel of church leaders, then one thing is certain. Christ isn't interceding for you. Christ isn't keeping you. Because you're lost. You've been lost all along. Spiritual victory in the life of the believer is proof that God's work in your life is real. That no one can bring a charge against God's elect. That no one and no thing can separate you from the love of Christ. Paul writes here in Romans 8 that, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. He doesn't write me or I. He writes us and we. You see, the church is united in this victory. We are conformed to the image of the Son of God in the context of the church, brethren. 
And uh, Ephesians chapter 4 makes that very clear. Well, what does Christ's continual intercession for us look like practically? The answer is it looks like church unity. If a local body is comprised of individual members who are truly saved, who are truly regenerate, individual members for whom the Son of God died and for whom the Son of God lives to intercede and in whom the Spirit of God dwells and is also interceding, then that corporate body of believers will be very, very unified. There's no place for divisions, for factions, for grudges, for grumbling, for selfishness in that body, is there? Brethren, if Jesus Christ is not now alive, interceding for us before the throne of God with the fact of his nail-pierced hands, then we're nothing. Because guess who also stands in the presence of God? Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses you day and night. If Christ does not intercede for us each moment of time, then all we are is a group of people who like to sing the same songs and read from a a historical text and have lunch together every week. That's it. We're nothing. But if, in fact, Christ lives to to intercede for the church, and he does, and if, in fact, we are called to imitate Christ, which we are, then we have to ask ourselves, how can we intercede for one another practically while maintaining a right understanding of biblical intercession? As we've discussed and seen clearly, we cannot atone for one another. But there are things that come out very uh, reflexively as we imitate Christ as, as his children. And the first thing is service. We need to spiritually, emotionally, and physically support and encourage each other. And this means that a member's needs in the body should not be ignored. We need to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. This is a very practical uh, means of, of intercession. Intercession has to do with loving not only in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth, we are called to lay down our lives for the brethren. It also means that members who have secret needs or hidden needs should humble themselves and ask for help. It's hard to help someone if the need is not known. Now, situations are complicated and some things are personal and private, but things can be done in 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 private ways, in in respectable ways, and you can confide uh, in the church leadership, but don't keep your needs to yourself. The body exists to support itself and to build up all the members. Do you remember uh, when Israel was fighting against Amalek? That may sound like an obtuse thing to ask you, but in Exodus 17, we find that the nation of Israel was going against Amalek. But it says that Moses' hands were heavy. So what did Aaron and Hur do? 
they took a stone and they put Moses on it so he could sit on it. Right? He was tired of standing. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And it says that thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Aaron and this other man, Hur, interceded on behalf of Moses, who was weak. He couldn't help himself anymore. And as his hands went down, uh, victory was fleeting. So they held him up. Intercession can be thought of as, a, as, as mercy. It can be thought of as compassion in action in the body. Matthew 15 it says that large crowds were coming to Jesus, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. They couldn't even come to Jesus, right? They physically carried them to Jesus. Mark 2, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. That is the picture of Christianity. A man who cannot move his arms and legs, and you have one person at each extremity bringing this man to Jesus. They, they do not save the man himself themselves. No, they bring him to Jesus. Hebrews 3, encourage one another day after day. Hebrews 10, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So the element of service and practical intercession in the body is crucial. The other element, of course, is prayer. Prayer for the saints and also prayer for the lost. Our Lord said to Simon, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Paul writes in Ephesians, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the saints and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. James 5, is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. You see, there's this intercession in prayer. Romans 15, Paul urges the saints to strive together in their prayers to God for him. You see, when we pray for someone, we are pleading their cause before the throne of grace. We are bringing them uh, to God in prayer. 2 Corinthians 1, you also joined in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. The favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Prayer actually helps. It's not just something we do because we're anxious and, you know, some people have a nervous tick while we pray. No, prayer is efficacious. It is real intercession, and it is crucial in the body. What about prayers for the lost? Romans 10, Paul prays for the salvation of the nation of Israel. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. They do not pray to God. Why pray to God for them? What were Stephen's last words? A prayer of intercession on behalf of his murderers. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
Do not neglect intercessory prayer. And the last thing I'll say in closing is spiritual discipline in the body is a fundamental element of real practical intercession. And although it is always best for us to start with the log that's in our own eye before we go after the speck in someone else's eye, it is right that we beg men to be reconciled to Christ. And Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 5. Keeping in mind matters of Christian liberty and conscience, we should nevertheless never ignore overt sin in a brother or sister's life. We need to speak the truth in love. It is a kind thing to reprove a brother who is in sin. And we need to keep in mind that we cannot see things in ourselves that other people see. Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We have a very clear prescription for how to handle sin in the church. James 5 says, If anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. See, that's intercession. The person is on their way to hell. They're turning away from Christ, and one turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We should be very thankful for elders who exercise spiritual discipline for us as an expression of intercession. Well, time is up. But meditate on this truth. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us.